Welcome back to Hire, everyone. The podcast full of wicked stories from the job market and experts showing us how to succeed in this. Because we've all been there, haven't we? It is time to get unstuck, baby. It's time to make some change. It's time to lead. And it's also time to hit that funky beat, Tom Zamzow. Yep, baby. <laughs> You know, can we keep this short today, Nikki? What? Why? We love waxing on and on, showcasing our brilliantly refined humour. I know, I know. But honestly, our scintillating, delicious humour pales in comparison to today's guest's wit and talent. So let's get straight into it then. Today on the show is the sensational Suzanne Peterson, Associate Professor of Management Leadership at Thunderbird School of Global Management. Showing us how to be an admired leader. Or becoming an admired leader, regardless of your level. How you have more than just one style within you when interacting with teams without compromising on authenticity. And how to take the power back when you're feeling burnt out. And how diverse talent is the key ingredient to successful organisations everywhere. We love her and so will you. Let's go get it. Hey everybody. This is Tom from the Editing Suite. Nikki and I have realised that we're not doing enough calls to action, but I want to explain a concept really quickly. When we say the description box or the show notes, it means that inside of your podcast player, so you use Spotify or Apple Podcast, there's a bit of blurb that we always add underneath every episode, and sometimes we hide little gems in that blurb. So today, three calls to action. Call to action number one. If you love this episode, please share it with your friends, family, loved ones, admirers. Uh, teachers, mentors, managers, because it will help the show grow tremendously and we will be able to bring you bigger and better guests moving forward. Call to action number two, go down to the show notes and follow the link to Go Hire Podcast on Instagram where you will find a post about this episode and let us know what you think. Let us know if you've experienced anything similar in your past um, or present. And number three, Suzanne um, is mentioning a Harvard Business Review article that she has uh, written recently. So if you love this topic, if you want to know more, we have left the link in the show notes below. Thank you very much. And yet again, let's go get it. We've got Suzanne in the virtual studio. As always, I am most pleased. That you are, Tom, as always. But thank you, Suzanne, for joining us today. And um, as always, we ask our, our guests to give us an elevator pitch up a big building. So I've decided to take you to Dublin today. We're going to go up the Guinness Storehouse and this amazing view at the top of the whole of Dublin. So off you go, Suzanne. Tell us your elevator pitch. Well, I am thrilled to be here and thanks so much for both of you having me. And as we go up this elevator here, I'll tell you that, you know, the biggest thing that I love to discuss is really how to make people better in whatever that they're doing. I think my whole life has really been about when I uh, encapsulate and describe what I love to do and what I, the people I love to be around. And it really is classified as becoming a maximizer of people. I mm. think about that in terms of, you know, can I maximize the potential of my children? I'm always around friends and family trying to think and take who they are and all, everything that's great, maximize them a bit, whether that's students at the university, whether that's people I coach, but that's what gets me excited every day. I'm not so sure that I am able to maximize everyone every day, but I know that if I live my life that that way, that I'm being true to what I want to do. And I'm certainly trying. 
that's really what all any of us can do to strive towards that um, goal. And if you've ever seen a job spec recently, there's an attitude for continuous improvement on every single one of them. So let's dive right in. Alas, our frequent listeners know this, but we have asked Suzanne to retain some of her most practical, most pro tips on how to become an admired leader until the end of the episode, because we just want to incentivize you to stick around all this time. But let's sort of frame where we're going to go with this episode. So Suzanne, you coach the leaders of today on how to be the leaders of tomorrow. And I think we should start with some basics, really. What are the hallmarks of a good leader to you? Well, to me, it's actually become very, very simple in a world of leadership that's completely complex. I think if you go out there into the leadership literature, there's so many different definitions of leadership, but most revolve around the concept of some kind of style or framework, whether it's servant leadership, transformational leadership, any of those types of things on top of saying leaders need to be this way. And these are the six competencies and the seven pillars and everything is generally fairly Values-driven, what are the leader's mindsets, values, cognitions, um, styles, and it gets really confusing. And I think most simply, great leadership and what my colleagues and I talk about, this notion of what makes an admired leader, not a new style of leadership. It simply says the best leaders we know, these admired leaders, they do two things with excellence. One, they drive superior results in what they do. So I'm not talking just good results. I'm talking superior results compared to industry standards, peers. They're truly the best at what they do. But at the same time, they drive incredible amounts of followership, loyalty, commitment. People would do anything for them, follow them anywhere. That's a pretty hard thing when you think about it, to get people that are that good at what they do, but people also are raising their hands saying, hey, call on me anytime. I'll do anything for you. Take me with you. Mm. Um, but that's what we find that the best leaders are able to really both sides of that coin. Absolutely. This is a great part for this next question, actually, because we'll go in a little bit de more detail later. But can you give us a small flavor of how conventional leadership behaviors have been challenged during the pandemic? And especially, as you just mentioned there, people following you. But it's quite different when you're living in a vir virtual land compared to meeting people face to face. Yes, I think today has allowed the best leaders have really sat back and taken an audit on who is the leader that they want to be. Because the truth is, anytime we go through crisis, change, or transition is the best time you could ever think of to make changes to how you lead. Because people tend to, even, even when you're making great changes, people generally resist others who change. There's like a level of who are you today? Go back to the old person, even though I, you know, even if I didn't like that person as well, I was more comfortable when you did things the old way. But when we're going through transition, what naturally happens is people are distracted. They're busy thinking about how am I going to work from home? How am I going to return to the office? How am I going to deal with a hybrid team? So now they're much more open to change. So we find now more than ever, we ask leaders and, and those best leaders are sitting there saying, you know, I've never been as good as I should have been at how I build relationships. I'm going to take this time to do a better job while I have the cover of the uncertainty. Uh, I want to be a leader that stands through for fairness and equality. And I, I thought I have in my, in how I've thought about things, but I'm not sure I've done anything about it. Maybe this is a time during this transition where I make that shift. So that's what, what we see is the best leaders are saying, time to renew my leadership, take an audit and be the, be the leader you've always wanted to be. Don't use the excuse of I'm just too busy to make the changes now. 
I think this is a really, really interesting um, concept. And anybody out there listening to this episode, please do hop over to uh, Go Higher Podcast on Instagram because I would love to hear your take um, on what has changed for you in this transition in uh, virtual land. I myself, not from a leadership perspective, um, for example, I found that the buzz and the thrill and the speed of a corporate office was what is what kept me alive and awake and I sourced a lot of energy from it. And with that falling away, it made room for um, a very strong affinity for deep thinking and for creativity, which eventually also drove me to launch my own business and um, this show. So I would love to hear from all of you what has changed for you in virtual land um, uh, through this pandemic-induced uh, space for change that we've been given. And Suzanne, on to the next question, really. There's an old adage um, saying that you should dress like the person that you want to become. Does this apply to leadership as well? Meaning, should you display leadership behaviors even at a junior stage in your career to be seen as a leader rather sooner than later? I think so. Though it's funny you use the concept of dress, since right now that it's you know for a year it's been yoga pants, right, for us all. And, and <laughs> elastic waist, so, all the way. You know, every day that I get up and have my you know suit jacket on and blouse, but just yoga pants or shorts on underneath, I start to think. <laughs> And I, I walk out and, and my children go, what are you wearing? You know? And I go, I was, on, I was on video. I was on video. Don't worry about it. Um, but absolutely. Uh, you know, the earlier in someone's career, uh, whether they're a student, whether they're brand new in corporate world, whether they're an entrepreneur, uh, whatever they might be doing, really one of the first things people see is, and they make judgments about, is your style and how you show up. And by style, I don't just mean literally your physical dress and how you're, you have stylistic dress, but that is one key marker. And it, we don't want to be prescriptive about it, right? We want people to be have their individuality and be unique and, and all those things. But there is a level of, do you ask yourself the question before you enter anything, whether it's, it is on video or whether it's in person, you know, how do I want to be seen today? And if your goal is to be seen as a peer or at the next level, whatever that next level is, are you showing up the way that next level shows up? Uh, a great example might be even in like the tech industry, that's clearly not a formal dressing industry. I can remember working with a client and they said, we didn't promote a particular person because he didn't know when to ditch the t-shirt and put the button down on. And oh, interesting. They still wore jeans and like a flip-flop and t-shirts at one level, but the next level was jeans, flip-flops, and the button down. And he didn't want to make that shift, which said, hey, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta look the part. And the next level is just slightly above that. So, you know, it's never too early to think about how you show up. And that's obviously verbally, non-verbally, but also contextually, which is something like dress. It's interesting mm. you say, well, Tommy brought up as well, but about dress. And I think the next question is a little bit about that. Like, what are some of the psychological, because that is psychological, right? It's like your mindset has to be to dress up in a different way or, or not worry about what people see you looking like. You have to, can still be a leader without being pristinely dressed the whole time, right? And um, so what are the, some of the psychological and hierarchy hurdles that you think aspiring leaders might face preventing them from flexing this leadership muscle? And how can they get past that? I mean, you just mentioned one. Somebody didn't want to change the, <laughs> into their different shirt. So what, what else is there out there people face? 
Well, I, actually, I think the biggest barrier is is the self because people do want to immediately, when you tell them that, you know, to get ready to prepare for that next level, you know, let's talk about, you know, how you're speaking. Let's talk about some of your nonverbals. Let's talk about what you're going to wear, where, who you're going to sit by, who you're going to talk to. There is an element of people saying, listen, uh, it feels inauthentic if I do anything other than show mm-hmm. up exactly how I feel like showing up. And the the world should accept everything about me, regardless of whether I wear you know yoga pants to work or whether uh, and don't do my hair and don't do anything with myself. It shouldn't matter. It should be about my competence. Well, there is a middle ground somewhere in there because the truth is, what we find is competence is really only half of the equation. In mm-hmm. fact, your style and how you show up and carry yourself is a huge contaminator of that competence. Mm-hmm. People will think you are less competent. If you don't really seem to look the part that whatever that part is at the same time, some people that are really good at looking the part, they're not as competent, but they, a great style makes them seem more competent than they are. So either way, I I, always found that there's a middle ground between taking somebody and saying, listen, you are who you are and we don't want to change that. But I think if you were to show up a little bit like this instead of that, it would still be within your range of authenticity, but could pay off in big dividends because you seem to be operating at, at the level of that you want to be. Can I just we jump think- in there about the dress oh, again on, while we're talking about like virtually, I want to talk about that. Like, is it still, I know you just, you mentioned it, you know, top might be a shirt, but like I've noticed a lot of people don't really dress up anymore at all, <laughs> like on the calls. So, um, I don't know if you've seen it in leaders, but even in within where I'm working, even the leaders aren't really dressing up properly either. So it's kind of interesting how that's maybe changed a little bit. I think it has changed a little bit. Um, I'm not sure for the better. Uh, We understand (laughs) people are at home. And I think it it can look a little too stiff, right? If somebody is in a complete business suit, just having a (laughs) one-on-one call with someone. Um, I don't Mm. think we need to go that far. But I tend to look at it as it also, at least with my clients, what the message I think it sends to them is you're important enough for me Mm -hmm. to put myself together a little bit more. And I'm also thinking about them. If I know they're going to show up very, very casual, if I show up too formal, actually, I create a barrier between us in some way. Mm-hmm. They feel less comfortable, less apt to talk to me. So it's hitting that middle ground. But I can tell you just yesterday, I gave a talk for a, a large uh, US bank and they have a key color that they wear, right? Whether it's blue or red or you know, the, these banks might have a color that shows some symbol of pride. I really showed up on the virtual camera and it was about three or 400 people. But, you know, I wore the strong color. It was a, it was just a blouse, not a suit, but it was, it's a strong, it was red. So a red blouse. I wore the certain jewelry. I did the hair. I really had the look like this is almost what I would wear in person. Mm -hmm. I still wanted to elevate the conversation, which is I respect the bank. I respect the culture. I respect that you are a more formal industry. And even though I'm just sitting here in my own home office, I still wanted to send that message that that I read those those particular tea leaves. I think I it's know more your well audience, received. right? Yeah, yeah, know your audience. Mm-hmm. I think generally there's so much to unpack in such little time, but um, I think one element, this I, I'm going to go into the authenticity piece a little bit later in this episode as well as people feeling if I'm anything but this one thing that I've designed myself, um, defined myself as, I will feel inauthentic. And we've just come uh, off an episode last week with a wonderful psychologist who said, look, even inside of you, you have a village of emotions and feelings and bandwidth, and it's exciting to explore all of them. 
And whether we want it or not to say, I will only be judged by my competencies. That's a very academic, very um, the superior I um, version of ourselves. But eventually we have this vestigial lizard brain that judges people by the twitch of an eyebrow, by their nonverbals. Your subconscious is very busy forming opinions in the first seven seconds of any interaction before any academic high level um, cognition has even taken place and so accepting that fact because it's just biology really allows us to explore this whole new concept of do i dress the part not to um, please people but to show sameness and to signal um, a specific thing to their subconscious so i'm loving this um, this topic but um, let's move on into this field a little bit deeper, Suzanne, and talk about style. And I've listened to your sheer endless repertoire of wisdoms on multiple occasions over the past couple of years. And I just cannot you know, talk about this one enough. It's one of my faves. Flexing your style tactically to achieve a certain outcome in a given situation. And you've got free range here, Suzanne. Explain to our audience what that means and why it matters. No, happy to. And it's it, the most, the number one most common mistake people make is confusing personality with style. When I say you need mm. to show up a little differently, you know, don't be so abrasive, be a little bit more uh, agreeable, um, be more relational, show more, flex more confidence. Somehow people immediately go to, you're trying to tell me to be somebody I'm not. Personality is largely unchangeable, immutable. Uh, it could maybe over many, many years change, but largely we are who we are and nobody should be apologizing for that. Style, on the other hand, is a set of behaviors and habits that you do most frequently. So for example, if you are the antagonistic, abrasive, something like that, maybe you are by personality. I, I can't change that as a coach, nor would I really set out to do that. There's a reason why there's positives and negatives to somebody who displays that personality trait. Mm -hmm. But if I look at someone who is antagonistic, they do engage in certain kinds of behaviors. Uh, they tend to disagree more often and more forcibly with people. Two, they tend to use a lot of I language. I this, I that, I don't think so. And three, they tend to interrupt often and, and not let people finish their sentences. So whether someone is or isn't abrasive or antagonistic is less important than going to someone and saying, from a stylistic perspective, I'd like to see you disagree more agreeably. Not this is what this looks like. <laughs> I'm loving it. It's great. Two, could you interrupt less, right? Listen three times more than you talk. Let people finish their sentences. And throw in some we, the team, more than just the I language. Then guess what? People are going to be more heavily influenced by you. And it doesn't matter whether they say, you know, I am who I am. Yes, you are. But there's a couple behaviors you should think about if you would like to get the results you want at work. But that's just the point, isn't it? This question of flexing style. You are at work. This is an... Um, you're not a psycho not a psychologist. Um, you're not trying to change somebody's core, but you are at work to achieve specific outcomes, and this is one of the assets that you have to develop your leadership style towards um, into that direction. So I'm loving this. Over to you, Nixon. <laughs> oh, thank you, Tom. Oh, this is amazing, absolutely amazing conversation. We'd like to spend a bit more time on the practical components of this flexing concept because I think it's amazing. Um, can you give us some more, some a few scenarios of where you've seen this done masterfully, and maybe one where it's been a little bit overflexed, um, and maybe to their own detriment? 
Sure. And I think the most, probably the most common thing we get, if it isn't, it's, it's one or the other. It's either the example I gave where people are saying this person is a little too abrasive, difficult, mm-hmm. problematic in some way, not relational, not collaborative. They throw out all these terms. Mm-hmm. Again, ignore the terms, go to what those behaviors are and have them flex a little softer. But even more common perhaps is people that feel they're not influential. I, I don't feel that I get listened to. Um, I want more influence. I want a seat at the table. I want to feel that, uh, you know, why does that person get listened to and I don't? Sometimes I feel like I say the same thing this other person does and yet people fawn over their words. And when I say the same thing, no one listens. What's the deal? And <laughs> so, all the time. <laughs> I know it's, uh, so that, that kind of becomes the most common. So when we go to somebody like that, right, you can't, there's no magic bullet to say, oh, well, go be influential Monday. You can do it. Right? I mean, <laughs> even if they would like to, they, they don't know what that looks like. Uh, and so to be able to look at someone and everyone's a little different on, on what, what types of things that you would give them, but I'll assume a scenario that I might go to somebody who wants to be more influential at a particular meeting. Let's even say it's a virtual meeting since that's so common today. I would probably say, first, make sure you get on the video just slightly ahead of the rest. I don't mean five minutes early. I'm talking two minutes a little earlier. Because what I what usually is more influential is someone who's already in the conversation. So I want you to be the one greeting people. Really easy to say, hi, how was your weekend as people are joining? as opposed to joining late and feeling like you're sort of an afterthought who's just jumping into the meeting, ready to talk about the topic. You've already greeted people, asked some questions, maybe some casual conversation has happened. Right? That kind of thing already puts you more in the information flow. Two, I might say try and speak up particularly early. Don't be somebody who weighs in late when people have started to tire and energy's drained. Make sure that you weigh in. You know, three, don't use things like the raise hand function or, you know, the the little clap or the thumbs up. Those are a little bit softer, more passive in terms of, you know, instead just kind of jump into the conversation. Even if that's not really who you are, you'd rather be more polite in terms of how you jump in. Try it once. Those would be some examples of people, the others in that meeting immediately feel more connected because you're in the flow of the conversation. They see you're not afraid to speak up and they heard from you quite early. That immediately gives the perception that you're slightly more influential. So we're getting people to use, notice those were small little either nonverbal or contextual things in a virtual medium that send the message of confidence as opposed to deference, which would be, let me just do raise the hand. Let me not jump in until someone calls Mm -hmm. on me. Let me keep putting myself on mute and not jumping in, letting everybody over talk over me. That immediately sends the message, you're less confident. And whether you are or you aren't, that's the perception people are getting. Camera on or camera off as well. A lot of people I've realized recently, especially without cameras on. And you can tell straight away, I always message them after to see if they're all right, because either they're, yeah, like you said, they're feeling like they can't jump in, they can't be part of the conversation, or they're just not feeling well, right, as well, which you've noticed a lot. But what what are your thoughts on that? No, and it's true. It's, it is. It, these things are so contextual, depending upon other markers a person possesses. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is a strong marker can also be um, title or position in a hierarchy. So mm-hmm. sometimes the most senior people that have the most power and influence are the ones that don't go on camera, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. they can. So they actually send the signal. I don't have to do what the rest of you do. I'm not on camera because I don't feel like it. 
Whereas if I'm more junior, if I'm newer, maybe if I'm a female, if I'm a person of color, if right, sometimes there's these resources that would say, now, if you're not on camera, that says you're not comfortable, that you're more passive, that you're hiding to some degree. And mind you, it doesn't mean all these things are necessarily true, but that is the marker it sends. So the same behavior, camera on or camera off, can send a very different message depending upon who you are and what people's perceptions are of you. So sometimes for that really senior person that never goes on camera, I say, well, no wonder people are afraid of you, right? You're, you're consistently sending these messages that you can do whatever you want, that you, you have your own rules. What if you showed up on camera and showed that sometimes, you know what, your office isn't perfectly pristine and you also have, you know, a six-year-old occasionally running in back of you. And that actually might soften your, your image to people. <laughs> hmm. I mean, the, again, this is all about reading the terrain. And I think we might just simply mustn't forget that we are in a, if, we, if you're employed, whether it's a corporate or it's a um, public sector organization, the hierarchies that are formally established are one side of the coin. The others are those that um, subconsciously become woven into, into your fabric just by nature of being in that place, especially if it's a physical office. Um, and this is also why you know, uh, competence is only one half the coin and confidence in the way in which you display yourself is the other. And it explains um, what Suzanne mentioned. Some people get listened to for something not particularly smart or interesting just by the way in which they present it. And um, I wanted to, before we hop into the wonderful topic of uniqueness and this thing <laughs> we're being preached on social media all the time, it's difficult, um, more difficult for some than for others to do what you said, to just speak up, to be there early, to show up, depending on your energy profile. Are you more so an extroverted person that gets energy from this friction, this engagement, or introverted, somebody who needs more time, space to formulate opinions and who doesn't want to be intrusive and doesn't want to be in this uh, thicket of, um, of energy flow? But I think Suzanne gave us wonderful access in how to do it anyways, even if you don't feel like it, because it's not betraying who you are. It is leveraging a tactic that um, for leadership behavior, and that makes it much more tangible, a skill, something that doesn't make us feel like a stranger in our own skin. Philosophical rant over, on to the next question. And I'm already in love with what we're going to do um, next here, because we just discussed the um, dress like the person you want to become at age. And now let's throw it all into the fire. Because if you behave like the person you want to become, then you run the risk of losing the person that you are, aka the, your uniqueness, which we have preached is supposed to be our biggest selling point, and we must fight for it and feel it every day, every moment, all the time. So, Suzanne, how do you both follow the right tactical steps for flexing style while retaining this uniqueness that um, is crucial for, for you finding your path in life? And it is a common question, and it's it's actually relatively simple and I think freeing for people when they realize that we're trying to get people to understand their range. As long as you flex your style within a range of authenticity, it feels like you. So some people have a very big range and it's quite authentic to them or they've built it over time. Big range might be in the two big markers of, of style that you've heard me talk about. One is kind of this power style, which gets listened to, but can sometimes be off-putting all the way to this other side. It's called the attractive style. And the attractive style means it's on the good side. It means it's highly approachable. People are drawn to it, comfortable, warm, relational. But it also can mean um, passive, deferential, weak, under the radar, uninfluential occasionally. 
So when we do this, when we go to somebody and tell them to flex their style, we're trying to figure out it, where their range is, where we can give them new behaviors and things to try. And they say, oh, I can do that. That's still me. Yeah. As opposed to giving them something. Like I coach a woman from China um, based upon cultural differences. If I tell her to start you know, pounding the table, interrupting everyone and making rude comments, right? this is going to be <laughs> way outside of her range of authenticity based upon her ideas of deference to, in this case, a, a very senior team, those that might be more senior to her, that would be terrible coaching. But if I simply tell her, could you sit a little bit closer to the CEO in this case versus sitting the furthest away possible? Could you sit a couple seats closer? Uh, would you be more comfortable rather than trying to um, blend in so much by only nodding in agreement? Could you occasionally uh, offer a contrary point of view even when asked? Um, as opposed to her, her tendency was only to offer contrary point of views in private because she felt that was more polite. So I gave her some tools on how to disagree and offer her viewpoint in a way that was still quite polite, and yet she was doing it. So those things she felt, I can do those things. It still lets me be true to myself, feel comfortable in my own skin, but I'm heard. And by even sitting just closer to the power center in this case, it put her a little bit mm. more in the flow of the conversation. So that would be saying, let's have you operate within, maybe it's a fairly narrow range, but it's still a range of movement that for her will seem like she is more influential, less influential than somebody else who might have a huge range to swing from high power to high attractiveness. Yeah, it's, that's absolutely amazing. Oh, you've actually answered, kind of asked the question I had next was, you know, hearing that it's probably a lot easier for someone a bit more extroverted to do this, to, to flex a bit more um, and to have a stronger kind of energy in the room. But if people don't have that and are a little bit more introverted, what else? Like I know you've just mentioned a couple of things. Was there any any other practical advice that you can give to people who can, you know, to help them get ahead if they're a little bit more extra or introverted? Sorry. Yeah, I would actually say, interestingly enough, in many cases, the introverts struggle less because they like the they like having a framework. Mm -hmm. When you take someone who's largely introverted, and again, just a personality trait, um, you know, for example, you know, I score quite high on the introversion scale. Tom, you've you've met me before; you would probably mm -hmm. be surprised by that. Um, <laughs> because introversion, at the end of the day, doesn't necessarily imply shyness. It implies mm -hmm. reflection, mm -hmm. needing time to recharge, needing time to get away, to be by yourself occasionally, gain energy from the self. Doesn't mean you can't go out and be sociable. Mm -hmm. But a lot of so. times, the introverts, when you tell them. You know, listen, you are who you are and you need to go into this meeting. You need to go into this call. You're going to have this kind of day. And I want you to think about each meeting. How do I want to be seen? And when they simply give themselves an adjective, so I might go into meeting one and say, I really want to be seen as a great supporter of my peer. Well, that should imply, no matter who I am, supporter of my peer. That should mean nonverbals of agreement, maybe even saying, I couldn't agree more. It should be standing beside them, offering more support, uh, endorsing their ideas, not needing to voice your own opinion. Right? Let them be the star of the show. So regardless of who I am, I can go in with that, those directives. But then I go to the next meeting and I say, I really need to be seen as the expert. 
mm-hmm. as the yeah. person people come to for these things. So if I just nod and just tell people, great job, I'm not mm-hmm. sure I'll be seen that way. So I'm going to go in and I know I'm going to need to speak more. I'm going to have to be more declarative in my statements, not just ask questions. I need to have a very confident way of saying, this is what I think we should do versus I think maybe we could do that. Mm-hmm. So I'll be thinking through some tools in that meeting because I want to be seen differently. And then next meeting and next meeting, sometimes those introverts are actually more planful and mm-hmm. thoughtful, whereas extroverts are so easygoing socially. Sometimes they're harder to rein in and say, hey, listener today, remember? Like school. I'll go back to my Montessori teaching next time I'm in a meeting. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I'm in love with, I think maybe, I think maybe possibly perhaps. Yeah. I also like how you brought up the word, I think, because I've heard that before, trying to get rid of that word as you're trying to be more um, assertive and leadership, like try not to say the word I think before and try and be a bit more, yeah, clear on what you're saying. Um, Because when you say I think, maybe sometimes it doesn't sound as good or as confident. (laughs) Anyway, um, we're going to move on a little bit more and and bring that back. You've already touched on as well in this this question of all merged into one, which is amazing. Um, But talking about communication style and and being strategic and I guess it's a little bit of a touchy subject um but when you're a bit more um, strategic about your communication sometimes it can be seen as a bit manipulative um whereas we'd argue argue that actually it's a great skill to be able to do this and have and get that self-promotion involved in as well can you help us break down this taboo a little bit yes I think that This idea of being more strategic with your style, it's the word that people don't like. Anytime you tell someone to be strategic, it sounds, again, it it immediately hits on somehow it's manipulative or I'm not being true to who I am or to the situation. But really, we have strategies for everything in life. I mean, businesses and right there's there's a million uses of we need a strategy. Why wouldn't we have a strategy <laughs> for how we build relationships, how have a strategy for how we show up or how we think about how we project and, and ourselves? So I think that it's more about having a plan than being deeply manipulative or strategic. Um, just to give a quick example, I went from two different talks at the same organization. And in one talk, it was to a group of traders, right? So in in the financial services industry, the next talk the next day was to a group of female executives in tech who were uh, frustrated with the glass ceiling type effect. So, you know, the topic by both leaders was the same. They both wanted to talk about how do these traders build better relationships internally because they tended to be a bit abrasive and off-putting by how they they are as a, as a function discipline, right? That they tend to attract a certain profile of person. And same thing with the women. How do we build more networks for the purposes of being more influential, getting more advocates and sponsorship? Mm -hmm. The truth is I thought very little about the content because I understood and I knew my content and I knew the behaviors I would cover in both of them. And they were going to be largely the same. But I didn't become a different person when I said, when I go in with the group of traders, they're going to care about time. They're going to want this to be quick, snappy, to the point. You're going to have to Mm -hmm. hold their attention. They're going to have to immediately see value. 
So, you know, whether it's I, I dress very formally, I walk down the to the podium in perfect posture, I make a lot of eye contact. And I remember turning around and immediately no introduction, no credentialing, because oftentimes credentialing is actually a marker of lack of confidence, right? Mm-hmm. I have to tell you how great I am, all my background, all the people I've worked with, my education, where I went to school, all these things to make you think I'm really going to be smart and powerful. When in effect, they don't really care right? in that, in that <laughs> instance. So I simply just turned around and said, I know you want to get back to your trading desks. I'm going to give you five behaviors. I bet they make you more money in the end. Number one. Right. And they were very like, wow. Okay. I've never had an intro like that. Right. And so everything lined up with like, I looked, you know, I kind of wore like a power suit, so to speak. I, I walked with a lot of confidence, but the key that people that, that people don't know is I didn't feel very confident. (laughs) I mean, I was not, because it's easy. People will sometimes say, but you do this all the time. I wish I could be more like you. Oh gosh. You know, I felt very nervous with that audience. Mm -hmm. I was very unconfident, frankly, but my whole thing is I'm not going to let them see that because the minute Mm -hmm. that they see that I don't feel comfortable in my own Mm -hmm. skin, they're not going to think anything I say is particularly credible. So I use those markers of dress and posture and eye contact and getting to the point quickly to say, uh, you know, you're going to want to listen to this. And then after I start speaking, it's fine. But then the next day, different talk. Imagine if I go to those women and I simply say, okay, ladies, you listen, listen up here. I'm going to give you four behaviors. They're going to help you and they're going to make you more money. They're going to go, I, you know, I'm just frustrated. I can't get a sponsor. Like, you don't know my world. What are you, you know, who are you, you know? So instead I dressed much more softly. I sat down at one of the round tables. So I asked the room be just in, in more of a dialogue format. And, you know, I just said, hey, well, what, what are you frustrated by? How can I help? Now, the truth is, as they brought up their their frustrations, I naturally talked about a lot of the same behaviors with different examples and gave some advice, but my goal was quite different. My goal was to be seen as a resource, as someone who could help, and someone who was a listener, who was empathetic to the situation. Mm-hmm. So that's very different than the trader example where I'm like, they better think I'm credible and the expert pretty quickly, or they're onto their phones and out the door very, very fast. <laughs> Um, so that was, you can see that's a pretty big range that I displayed, but nobody would have seen me in one or the other and said, wow, she's a totally different person. They would just say, oh, made sense that she took a very different approach mm-hmm. in one scenario versus the other. Oh, absolutely. Back to your knowing your audience, right? And that can be, that can resonate on many different levels and any, any jobs as well, or any types of company that you're in is knowing your audience and who you're walking into the room with. I think that's really important um, information for people to take away from this episode. Now we're going to go into time management, taking the power back and a bit of networking as well. So um, Tom, over to you. Let's talk Mm. about taking the power back. Suzanne, you said something very refreshing to us in our pre-call actually. And um, so again, it goes very much against the grain, which is why I'm loving it so much. You said we really need to stop telling people to work less as the ultimate guide to happiness. And I have my issues with the um, idea of work-life balance anyways, because if we wait until we get off work to live before we go to bed, then then we don't really have much waking lifetime at all. So um, we could say that it is less important how much time you spend at work if you really and truly love it, but how you spend that time there. Um, what do you think about that? 
Well, to me, it's always become become simple in the last you know several years as I've thought about it. And someone, a mentor of mine, told me that when it comes to people, this this term of burnout and people, it's been a big discussion with the virtual world that people are working more than ever before because this the workday never stops. But he always said that the the litmus test of burnout was really just about resentment. So are you resenting the work because it's keeping you from other things more important to you, larger priorities in life? Mm. And sometimes that's true. If you're a person that's walking around saying, I cannot get out of my own way. I resent that I'm not spending time with the people I care about the most. I'm not doing the things I used to do. I'm not taking care of myself the way I used to because of work. That's That's one problem to solve. We have other people that truthfully feel very different about work. And they say, I, it's a big piece of my identity. I don't look at it as, as something I have to do. I love doing it. So the idea of working six, seven days a week, more hours than others really doesn't bother me. And in effect, I actually get quite a lot of enjoyment out of it and feel that I still find ways to work in my priorities. So that's really the key is, is are you leading with your priorities or what it was Ed Deming, uh, the famous uh, management researcher that once said, it's about, it's about knowing what your big rocks are. And he had an experiment uh, that I'm sure we could find somewhere on YouTube where the big rocks experiment was he had a certain type of uh, funnel or dish. And he says, usually what happens in life is we put all the little things in first. And his experiment was to put in, in this um, kind of funnel, the, the sand and rocks and pebbles and water, and you pour mm-hmm. all that in and fill it up. And then there's no room for the big rocks. But if you put in the big rocks first, then it's amazing how much water can fit between the big rocks and the sand and the pebbles, and it seems to fit. So same amount of material fits differently depending upon what you put in first. So what I tell people the most is take a great, again, that I use that word audit again, but take that audit of yourself to say, what are the most important priorities? And you know, it's work, it might be my kids, it's a spouse or partner, it's my exercise, it's my health, it's my community, it's my spirituality, whatever it might be for you, what are those seven, eight big rocks? And it's not about putting in hours and hours and time on each of them. In fact, these admired leaders, what they do, they, take, they figure out their big rocks and their litmus test is 10 minutes a day on each big rock. Mm-hmm. Not that they wouldn't take more if they could, but the idea being, I don't ignore my big rocks every day, 10 minutes of focused attention, whether that's a 10 minute workout one day, whether that's a 10 minute deep conversation with a partner, whether that's 10 minutes of, um, you know, focusing on meditation, cause that works for me. It can be different for all people, but rather than putting these constraints on what we should or shouldn't do, it's more about, are you hitting your priorities and are you feeling resentful? Which I think also speaks to this point that Nikki had made earlier about taking the power back. Um, so one, thank you. Brilliant. Not surprised. <laughs> and number two, it's about taking the power back about what do you want to achieve at work in your life? Are you using your time towards that purpose and goal? Um, and I think that is where the alignment needs to be, not what some sort of uh, societal expectation around work-life balance um, should be. One other point before we hop into something that both Nikki and I are very passionate about, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion, but you are a master networker, and we speak about the power of networking a ton on this show, and I mean a ton. 
And um, I've uh, notably dropped a wonderful piece of advice um, you once gave me about actively making time to network every single day earlier in another episode. Um, but let's hear it from uh, the mouth of the master, really. How do you actively network outside of your day job, Suzanne? And more importantly, do you have a story or two of how it paid off in the long run? Yeah, I mean, every literally, I would tell you almost every single day how I approach relationship building. And, and I'm pretty strategic, if you will, on that part, which is I try to avoid the word networking only because I think it does um, bring up the wrong flavor for people. Again, they think it is mm -hmm. political. Everything's about a happy hour. Everything's about people wanting things from each other, right? Um But how you build relationships in a way that's real, that's, again, authentic, but that also does turn out to, to pay off for you in the end and pay off in two ways. One, from the area of business and development and who knows you, but also the truth is, you know, most of the time as we get later in our career, we realize that most of our impact um, is not about what we did. It's about who we had an impact on. Who did we make a difference? What's our legacy? Who do we know? Who knows us? Who's going to be thinking about us? Um, the old idea, as I say, you, you know, you don't really need networking to get friends, but you might need networking to keep them, um, <laughs> that type of thing. So the way I think about it, again, I like to make things pretty simple is I have a general litmus test, which is, <clears throat> do I reach out to three people in my network every day? And three is not a lot. And yet at the same time, in a busy day, we're also thinking about the idea of saying, well, gosh, you know, I don't know, you know, three people, who would I pick? How would that work? Um, and you want to create some discipline around how you reach out to people. So three people a day doesn't have to be external and business development related necessarily. Sometimes those three people Like yesterday, it was, you know, my sister to check in on how the first day of school was for her kids. Uh, two, it was a former client who had given a big pitch at work, and I just checked in to see how it was. And the third person I reached out to was to pass along a compliment that I had heard from somebody um, about that person. Hey, just passing this along. That, in my world, is what great networking is about. Not about saying we should connect for coffee and talk about our business interests, but in knowing enough about people to say, I have small little reasons and I'm on the lookout for reasons to reach out when I don't really know, when I don't need anything. Mm -hmm. Certainly didn't need something from my sister. I wasn't <clears throat> complimenting that client because I was trying to get business that day. And I wasn't checking on the pitch for any transactional reason either. I was truly knew how nervous she was about it. It was a very big deal and wanted to check in. And she said, you know what? You're the first person that's asked me, hmm. right? And it had been earlier that morning. She said, thanks so much for checking. Nobody else asked me how it went and it went great. So I'd love to tell you about it. So just being there, but you have to track information about people. You have to really be listening, write some things down and then think who makes sense each day to reach out to. What, what's going on in the world? What's going on in their lives? What do you know mm -hmm. about them? Where do you share some overlap? And then it just becomes part of the discipline to say, oh gosh, I haven't reached out to my three people yet. So you know you need to do it. And then you need to think about who it is so that it makes sense. Nothing's worse than just reaching out to people to go, hi, uh, you were on my list today. Just thought I'd say hi. <laughs> right? <Imagine. laughs> no value really. Um, <laughs> So that, that's the, that's a philosophy, but I will tell you the hard part is people will say, I hear you. That sounds great, but I got to be honest. I've let a lot of relationships go. So I don't know much about people anymore. I don't know how else to reach out to resurrect the relationship. 
Um, and that's very true. The resurrection of the relationship sometimes does require the, hey, we have not talked since the beginning of this pandemic. If you're comfortable, let's go grab a coffee. You start mm-hmm. there, you have to start over. But then at that point forward, you've got to keep that cadence alive. Hmm. And it's not even about some sort of immediate tactical payoff. That's not what we're trying to advocate when we talk about um, connecting, networking, building relationships, maintaining relationships. But um, whether you are in your nine to five job or whether you're thinking about spinning off into a side hustle um, or start an entrepreneurial journey, you just never know whom you may um, need at some point, not to use and abuse, but to ask for advice, to ask for um, assistants who may pass you an opportunity because they're also thinking, oh, wait a second, but I just received this fabulous compliment. This person is top of mind. Uh, I just realized that um, Suzanne launched a new uh, business for herself or Nikki did, um, or Tom did. Maybe this could be of interest for them. So it's not, you're not doing it for quid pro quo. Um, That's right. You're doing it just to be, um, to, to be there and have um, just have friends in unlikely places and situations that you can't even imagine yet. And it's worked like this for me for all of my career. We had an example today, right, Tom? You've introduced someone that I introduced you and then, like it ended up. Oh, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that was pretty cool. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's the whole idea of, is make, make sure that it's not that you're not reaching out for transactional reasons. Yes. Mm-hmm. People, even people who are really sociable. They'll say, oh, I'm great with relationships. I'll say, no, you're, you're really sociable. You're great when you're out to dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. I don't actually think you keep the conversation alive and you don't really know how to, con- to continue to keep those relationships ripe so that they, they, are, they are there for you when you do need them sometime. And it's very easy to ask people for favors so you have a real connection with. It's much mm-hmm. more awkward to go ask somebody for a favor when you say, I know we haven't been in touch for two years, but any chance you could refer me to this job? Right. Um, it's not that they won't do it, maybe, but how invested will they be when they haven't heard from you except when you want something? Yeah, absolutely. So for our final topic, before we get into your top tips, which I think you've already given quite a few during the episode. So hopefully I'm sure you have some more left over, even better ones at the end. But our question, my question ties back to leadership and it's a little bit into DE&I, as Tom mentioned, one of our favorite topics on the show and and especially between the two of us but we wanted to talk about the diverse representation in the workforce so things like female quotas whether they should be treated differently even in a positive way because you belong to this minority group it's really complicated right like how do you how do how do companies bring up women without it being just a quota um for example and being gay myself is also a big thing we talk about within PMI at the moment is like how can we change that how can we have more gay leaders in companies um without it just being quotas like how do we actually do that we should all be treated equally right but we aren't all equal so and back to uniqueness uniqueness sorry we're all very unique so how do you go about this and back to leadership style when you're coaching leaders how to help them to be more aware of this or building strategies to help develop a more diverse workforce and of course the diverse needs because when you do that there's also so many dimensions of diversity inclusion that you have a lot of things to do within a company right if you're talking about disabilities you're talking about gender neutral toilets you're talking about policies that have to change there's so many things in there can we talk about that a little bit yeah, I think this is an area where, you know, not surprisingly, it's been tough to handle. And I'm not sure all companies and places are handling it correctly, um, even yet today. So first and foremost, I think we do a little bit of a disservice with too much of, of a focus on 
putting diverse groups into affinity groups, pods on their own, right? It's like, we've got the women's network. We've Mm -hmm. got, you know, the LGBT network. We've got the people of color network. We've got, right, these things. It's not that there isn't a place for great conversation, people that face similar challenges. I'm a huge fan of that. But actually, we're we're doing more harm in organizations by continuing to isolate. Mm -hmm. As opposed, isn't diversity really just about talent? When I talk, it's a leadership issue. I talk to leaders and I say, is this your goal to retain the best talent that is in your organization? Because guess what? A big percentage of your talent is diverse. So I'm assuming they want to keep the best talent, period. So every time I've proposed any kind of DE&I and my colleagues and I right now, the cornerstone of what we're doing around that is to say, I want you to gather your top talent. Absolutely, we need to make sure, because I guarantee there is top talent in your organization that is diverse, and they all nod and go, of course. So rather than trying to say, oh, can you tell me, can you pick every person of color and let's put them over here in a program? I say, can we mix all (laughs) sorts of top talent, some of which absolutely is diverse, and we're going to do three things with those groups of top talent, because we want to develop them as as leaders in this organization, and we want to retain them. It's a retention problem. They say yes, and they're nodding. They love this. So we do three things. First and foremost, we say you focus on the manager and employee relationship. It's the old adage, people come to companies, they leave managers. Most diverse Mm -hmm. talent, if you ask them, they don't leave necessarily because of a company policy. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they leave because of their manager. Manager didn't sponsor them, manager didn't mentor them, didn't care about their career path, didn't invest in them. There's not a deep understanding. They don't understand the journey. They don't care about the journey. It doesn't make these managers bad people. They're just unskilled. And they don't, they have never really thought about this this way. So the cornerstone is to first take all top talent, some of which is diverse, and say, we want to really put them together with, we want to increase the manager-employee relationship. So we actually work with the managers of the diverse talent first and say, do you really know how to invest relationally in your people? Because you're not going to retain people if you don't. So Mm -hmm. manager-employee relationship. Two, sponsorship which should not be the manager, it's somebody else. Um, now, sponsorship is different than mentorship. Mentors, you're wise, give me advice, coach me a little bit perhaps. Mm-hmm. A, a true sponsor says, I put my reputation behind you. I give you a platform. I give you visibility. I put you in situations. I get you involved in projects. I help actually navigate through this organization and I take my power and my position to consistently tell people what your talents are and give you opportunities that you might not get if just by being mentored and given some advice. So then we make sure that there's a deep sponsor and someone committed, their own career is committed to sponsoring that diverse talent that they want to retain. Mm-hmm. And then three, we develop the diverse talent, but we not just generally, right? Every topic doesn't have to be on diversity. What we find is that diverse talent are interested in in two main things. One, how do I be as credible as everybody else in this organization? I understand I represent some uh, some diversity. I'm not like everybody else. Great. This is good. We want diversity. But the point is, credibility is credibility. So we focus on how do they build a credible and influential reputation? And two, back to our other topic, they want to figure out how to network more authentically. They felt left out of certain networks, of course. So trying to help them better navigate that organizational structure, those are really the two topics. Be more credible, better understand the network, enhance the employee-manager relationship, and make sure there is a sponsor that's deeply committed to retaining that talent. 
So frankly, I frame it in leadership and retention less than I do in DE&I. Um, and I find it's refreshing to the diverse talent to say, yeah, you know what? I want to be a talented professional first and I want to be gay second, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's brilliant. I love that. And we, we do it a lot, especially with when we just set up our ERGs like in the last year that our mantra and our vision and our mission is to make sure that we're not in a silo because that's like the worst thing we can't we even do it within our community the lgbt community end up in silos and they don't help each other so we're this exactly the same we're like helping all the other ergs set up we're making sure we have events together we're completely trying to be now just another buzzword but intersectional about what we do but it it really is genuine and, and exactly what you said because the last thing you want to do is segregate us into like a small oh there's the gay group oh there's the right. you know yeah. like that's the last thing you want to do but you do need the space for people to be able to go to that group and feel comfortable because they're the same people but then you do need to make sure that you're connecting with everyone else as well it's really really important no i definitely believe in the ergs for community and for dialogue and support and sharing mm-hmm. i think it's just not the only answer for organizations Absolutely. to say oh we're doing our work on diversity we've created these ergs <laughs> yeah. right yeah. um it's not enough no <laughs> i mean i'm ready <laughs> for dessert this main dish was but i don't know if i have any room for it because this main course was absolutely spectacular Suzanne you've given us so much to think about and so much to implement in our own lives as yet maybe a little ristretto Nikki what do you think (laughs) absolutely and as promised as always we keep the best well not the best bits but the top tips that you need to go away once you finish listening to this and go and do immediately so Suzanne here's your moment the top three things that people need to go and do immediately now Immediately, I'd say I'm going to hit on the three topics we talked about and give one on each. So number one, go into every every meeting, personal or professional. Honestly, even if it's with your kids or spouses and partners, uh, whatever it is, the idea is go into those next situations and really think, how do I want to be perceived? Come up with that adjective of what you want to, how you want to be described and think about it. Does that mean I should talk? Or listen, does that mean I should take up space, give up space? Should mm-hmm. I be, you know, give yourself a feeling to say, I mean, I know if I show up with my kids, if every time I'm just, you know, completely high power, do this, do that, I, they don't, they don't feel that I listen to them. But if I'm also, so every time just a listener, I'm not parenting them, right? So mm-hmm. it's thinking about how you alter that style. So how do I want to be seen? Think about it, play with some markers. You know, Tom can refer you back and, and Nikki, you can let them know how to find the Harvard Business Review article mm-hmm. that really lays out these markers um, in, in that previous issue. So that's one. Mm-hmm. Two, think about your time. Are you spending it the way you want to be spending it? Can you take that internal audit and just even go right down your seven big rocks, meaning the seven big priorities? Imagine, say, how often are those in your day every day? Even 10 minutes a day, can you give to each one of those? You will begin to feel more balanced. And if you feel really, you do feel the burnout and resentment, all that, think about what needs to change. Quickest change I made lately, I was telling Tom this before we began today. I just started to take Friday afternoons off. Not everybody can have that particular option, by the way. I recognize that. But I decided that's the time. I don't mean off that I'm just going to go shopping. But I meant mm-hmm. I'm, I need to be off Zoom and I need to be mm-hmm. off WebEx and Teams and all these things and mm-hmm. not take meetings as much. 
have a little bit of white space, have some reflection time. Hey, and maybe I will go to the spa and that's my choice occasionally, you know, but the point is I need that time to recharge and I've tried to take that back. And three on the relationship piece, try it. Reach out to three people a day, pass along great information, check in on people. People do need connection. Um, Many of us have not had as much of it, even if we've gotten used to whatever the level is, but through this Mm -hmm. last year, Mm -hmm. Um, but see if you can do that. Reach out to three people a day. See what that does for your network, for your energy, for how you're feeling about the people in your lives. And amazingly, new things will come up all the time. You never know when you have that small interaction with someone, how it turns into something you never expected. Amazing. And (laughs) dessert, ristretto, espresso, whatever you are in the mood for has been served. Suzanne, thank you so much for your many wisdoms and time today. This was wonderful. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Nikki. What an absolute treat. Remember, everybody, practice your flexibility skills because it's going to take you a long way from where you are now. Now, in next week's episode, we may or may not have a spectacular and wonderful um, guest on the show who is actually a licensed and trained psychologist to walk us through some of the ways in which our emotions um, get us to this point of feeling stuck in our career, not quite knowing how to shake this sticky glue Um, and moving onward towards richer pastures. I'm saying possibly, maybe, because we did actually record her already, and uh, she was supposed to be this week's episode. However, the technology glitched and didn't capture her audio. So will she make a return? Will she be willing to record with us one more time? We shall see. Otherwise, you're going to get a delicious Nikki and Tom solo special um, about topics that we have not yet decided. So stay tuned. Be sure to check out Go Higher Podcast um, on Instagram to talk about this episode and let us know what you think. And as always, let's go get it. Hey! 